Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Joining me today in the spotlight is Dan Runcy. Dan is the founder of Trapital, a media company that covers hip-hop business and strategy. Trapital assesses why and how hip-hop artists and the businesses that surround them make their key decisions. Powered by Dan's insightful intellect and accessible style, Trapital's newsletters and other content are must-read. See for yourself by clicking through to Trapital's website in our episode notes. And now, Dan Runcy. For me, I started my writing work doing freelance. I started off with a Medium blog. I was just going there by myself, throwing a few ideas out there. And I remember at the time, I did feel like there was a void in the type of stories that were being told. Especially when I looked at hip hop, I remember it was around the same time I was in I was in business school and there was a case study that was released on Beyonce's surprise album drop. So the surprise album drop was in 2013. The case study was in 2014. And it made headlines everywhere. Everyone was talking about how amazing this was and how much they learned from it. And because I was already in this case study mode, reading stories about Crown Cork and Seal and the new Coke and Pepsi and all these other, you know, legacy blue chip Fortune 500 companies, here we are learning just as many insights about these things. And then that stuck out to me about all the other lessons of learning about not just the strategies, but some of the missteps from past record labels, past artists, and the business moves they've made. And when we think about where a lot of the strategic stories lie and who gets to tell those stories, how those stories get developed and crafted, it really ends up being much more of your Elon Musk's, your Mark Zuckerberg's, things from your traditional finance and tech worlds. And it's not necessarily about hip hop as often. And with that is also the representation about who are the folks that in hip hop. So by being able to have a more regular cadence than the occasional Harvard Business School deep dive, it would do a great job of being able to elevate these stories, educate people within the music industry who are living, breathing this every day, probably think these things, but it's helpful to have someone to synthesize it together and put into a package on a weekly basis. But then the people that are also thinking about what career opportunities may look like, what's possible. So highlighting the people behind the scenes or the work that happens behind the scenes, the artists themselves, and especially just the expansion that's happened in the past decade, that gave me the push to say, okay, this isn't just beneficial, but it's beneficial now. So let's put this out into the world and see, see what happens. So uh, I started Trapital 2018, started as a pilot that I was doing while I was working um, full time. It started to gain some traction in roads with the right audience that I hoped it would um, resonate with. And then slowly built up the um, reader base and then also the ability of myself to work on it full time and have been doing that for a little over a year now. That's amazing. So, th- so Trapital's your gig. Yeah. So Trapital's the gig since, um, since February, 2019. Yep. Trapital's been the gig. That's amazing. And uh, you say that with, I don't know if you could see yourself in Zoom, but the, the look of pride that you have about that, um, that that's an amazing No, thank you. Um, Of course, you know, it's still a long way to go with everything that 
I want to be able to accomplish with it and where things can potentially go. But it, it was a big leap. I think for a while, I mean, from a personal perspective, doing something that was entrepreneurial was always something that resonated, but I wanted to make sure it was doing something for the right reasons and trying to contribute to something that in many ways was bigger than myself. There was a market opportunity for something like this, and there was a good way to be able to see where trends are heading, both from hip hop, but also from uh, media perspective and how digital media is now created, how things are being pushed and executed. So I said, okay, there's a lot of things aligning right now. So this is um, a better time than never to, to push it out. Yeah. Yeah. And let me just wind back just a little bit. You said you did your undergrad at Quinnipiac? I did. Yeah. So I did my undergrad at Quinnipiac. Um, yeah. So I studied business there. Gotcha. And then where did you get your MBA? I got my MBA at University of Michigan. Um, so I was in Ann Arbor for two years. Uh, so yeah, so in between, I'd worked at Travelers Insurance Company in Hartford. I started in one of their um, development programs for recent business graduates, moved into a market analyst role for a couple of years, and then decided to go to business school. So did that was in business school 2012 to 2014. And then 2014 is when moved out to San Francisco. Wow. And so there was a, was there a Delta in time between the move to San Francisco and starting your company? Yeah. So when I first came out to San Francisco, my focus was much more centered around tech and the types of jobs that were a bit more traditional for that quote unquote post MBA career path. And I had found roles in strategic partnerships. I um, had done a quick internship with a venture philanthropy firm when I was out here that ultimately was working with an ed tech organization that I was with in a strategic partnerships role. But it was around this same time that I had started doing the medium posts and then the medium post expanded into the freelance writing. So for a solid few years there, it was doing the continuing on the career path that I had and I think for all intents and purposes was going well, you know, I was following the standard path. was moving into more managerial roles within the organization and was doing the type of things that I did enjoy. But I also saw the opportunity of where things were going with Trapital. And although Trapital didn't exist yet, I was starting to get picked up and was doing freelance writing for publications like Wired and Complex and was still starting to focus on the business of hip hop. So it was this interesting blend of my full-time job where I needed to use a lot of these skills and principles about how to think about strategy in a way where different organizations could come together, but then also being able to apply some of that logic in a completely different industry and then learning, okay, what makes sense in this industry? What doesn't? And I think it's one of these interesting things where you think that, yes, because you're coming in from a different perspective, you may not have, you know, the quote unquote seasoned background of someone that, you know, started their career at MTV, then interned at Atlantic Records and so on and so on. But by being able to come in from a different perspective, it often gives you insights that others may not necessarily have, but then also making sure that I'm doing my work as well to understand what's happened at those places that I didn't necessarily work at, how those things continued. So I've definitely done my best to try to use that unique experience that I've had and entry into this space 
um, as a as a unique positioning for myself. Well, one of the things that stands out for you definitely um, your writing voice takes these. Um, I wouldn't not necessarily complex uh, issues, but you take a you take a business issue, and it's in a very accessible voice, but it's not um, it's not dumbed down. I find the writing very engaging. Um, tells me a fresh angle on things I thought I knew before. But one thing that became clear to me is that you're a nerd about this music. <laughs> and, and I say that with all with all love and respect. Right, right. Um, you know your history, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'd like to just talk about that for a second because maybe in the first 15, 20 years or so of hip hop, the the pace was always made that there is no history, that there is no longevity, that there is that it's always a current music, whether it's because it's um, a commentary, because mm -hmm. it's news outlet. But there was a real resistance. And, I, you know, I, we could talk about whether it's Jay or LL whoever the figure is that sort of allowed the music to mature. There was this idea that, there, that it was a, strictly a young person's game. Right. I, I'd love to hear your perspective on that, how that, how that shapes how you think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that for a while, hip hop was vying for legitimacy and wanted to get some of that credibility and some of that use the same word again, legitimacy that didn't necessarily exist before. Thinking whether it's um, the NWA scene and that whole experience where they are going out and not just speaking on their own experience, but they're trying to be the voice that wouldn't necessarily get any type of mainstream coverage. I think you heard a similar aspect as well with Public Enemy referring to themselves as the black CNN. Like this is our outlet to voice what's happening because CNN won't let us be able to communicate those messages. So I do think that this stuck with hip hop for quite a bit. And even if you think about like MTV and the whole history of them not wanting to play hip hop and black artists and things like that, there was always this kind of this like, black sheep treatment that hip hop had to face for a while and things stayed that way. Even like when I first got in, when I first got into things, right? Like even in the nineties, things were starting to turn, but it was still a bit of a pause, right? Like it was urban music. And even some of those classifications linger to a fair amount today. But I do think that there were a few turning points, not to put it all on one person. You did mention Jay-Z, but it is hard not to acknowledge what he's been able to do. I think his transition, especially after like Rockefeller records had split, you saw him and Damon Dash as like two very different ideologues on how they saw business, how they saw partnerships. And I think the fact that Jay-Z was willing to partner and get a lot of that quote unquote legitimacy from the, big organizations, your live nations, and then that extending into having president and senior type roles in the music industry, him being able to have a mix of someone that is both the owner and willing to partner with the big players. I think seeing his success and seeing his dual status as I am the GOAT rapper, but I am also the, the most accomplished business person in this game, I think that inspired a lot of people. And then it was hard not to ignore the success at this point. And a lot of those things too are also a bit, there's some problematic things, of course, the image, right? Like how rappers and how 
the media had positioned a lot of them, let's say in the 90s and 2000s, was in this off mainstream way where it didn't necessarily affect the mainstream pop music machine to a deep extent. But I mean, that's that dynamic is completely flipped now. So I mean, by the time you get to the late 2000s, artists like Drake that are influencing almost every aspect of the industry, I think you can look at several different types of records and ways to measure artists. It's hard to not look at the past decade and look at him as being the most impactful artist that we've had. Some people may say Taylor Swift, but I think when you look at that and you see the influence, things really did start to shift for, shift then. And I think now I'm interested to see what this next decade is going to be like, right? Because we see the trends and we see that, okay, hip hop is having more and more influence. And I think like that, you'll probably see more and more sub genres have even more stronger voice than they do now. I'm just thinking about like how rock and roll continue to evolve into like the different groups that are the different sub genres that took control there. But I think for the time being, this is an industry that is continuously and growingly influenced by what's happening by the biggest artists in hip hop. It's really fascinating to me that Maybe you can articulate better than I will, but something happened along the way where definitely in sort of post-gay, post-Drake world where there was always the undercurrent or always the alternative, you know, to the mainstream in terms of whether it's, you know, it's things like Doom or, you know, just sort of like alternative hip-hop, basically, smaller, mm -hmm. less mainstream. But something happened along the way where it seems like the culture got its confidence to sort of embrace it weird in the mainstream and i think that that's that's not a trivial point because i think it mirrors other musics where once it gets comfortable with its legitimacy or feels like it's it can transcend what it was looking for out of legitimacy before then it really starts to blossom and all those sort of disparate elements there, it sort of loses an ideological purity that maybe it had to hold on because right. now it is so established um and it's an amazing time to, to you look at the 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 spectrum of artists now versus even 10 or 15 years ago that can show up in the top 10. Really. Yeah, no, I, I would, I would agree with that. I, because I think that there's a, there's like the, the quote unquote chip on your shoulder stage, right? Like when you always feel like you need to carry the burden of hip hop on you. And I think that created a lot of good music, but that could have held some artists back from being able to blossom in the way that they see, you know, someone like a little Uzi Vert who, let's say that he, we transported him 25 years earlier and it's 1995. I don't think he necessarily would have gotten the opportunity to do what he's doing now, right? So I think that the artists back then carried a burden that they don't necessarily carry now. And to your point, yeah, I do think that we're starting to see things blossom. We're starting to see artists like him. We're starting to see more artists like Meg Thee Stallion who can really have her her own lane and push things there. I'm yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see where what will 2030 look like, right? And I know that I keep using the life cycle of rock and roll as a bit of a comparison to see, okay, is this comparable to hip hop? Is this what we could potentially expect for where things are going? I think things are different and not that I would necessarily pin like the popular culture of rock and roll on any one particular uh, person or group, but it's, it's a little different. I think that, yeah, we're going to, I think that 
if the 2010 to 2020 range that we just went through was this like accelerated growth phase, I think we'll start to see a bit more of that accelerated growth continue into a more of a, I don't want to say maturity because that implies that there's a decline, but I think that we'll start to see things um, just develop a bit more strongly, especially on a global perspective. I think that's where we'll probably see some of the strongest growth in the next decade. Does American hip-hop export well globally? It does. It does. I think it, I think it especially exports well in a few ways. One, the artists that are the biggest stars, they make more money. A lot of them make more money overseas than they make here. And it's been this interesting mm-hmm. dynamic where they feel that this is like some of, some of them shared a few direct quotes on this. They feel as if the artists in the U.S. have high expectations, and there's a little bit of this. Well, who's this person on stage? I could go. I could go do that, right? And we have a bit more of an abundance of being able to get the best rappers in the world to come to said music festival, said this, and we're a bit more of a critic, right? It's like performing in the U.S. is almost like stepping into Twitter, right? Like I've heard that analogy before. However, when U.S. artists go to Europe, for example, or they'll go to South America, perform for some of the music festivals there. The festival guarantees tend to be a little bit larger. The artists there are, or the fans there are much more willing to cheer and they're less critical of what's happening. So from that perspective, I do think it translates well. It's interesting though, I think things are a little bit different in Asia and some of the other countries where English may not necessarily be the predominant or uh, language that is spoken as commonly, but I do see the influence of those hip hop artists there almost following a similar life cycle to what we saw in hip hop a few years back. Like some of the music now that's coming from some of the regions in the Middle East that have been dealing with their own political uprise and and oppression and some of those governments trying to restrict the music that is critical of their government. A lot of that's hip hop music. So I'm hearing and researching those stories. This is literally what we were dealing with 30 years ago when Public Enemy was on their rise. So I see that and I'm hearing those artists in those regions now saying that, oh yeah, we saw what happened in the US. They're our inspiration for what we're trying to get to. So I see that influence as well happening with um, with the global artists, specifically within their own countries as well parallel to draw. That's, that's, that's great historical context. Before I jump into a couple of your articles, I, I'd like to um, just revisit traffic. Talk to me a little bit. Uh, give me the overview. Um, so it, it was a, it was a, it's a home for your writing, mm-hmm. but it's much more than that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the other services or the other, the other things that fit under that umbrella? Yeah. So Trapital as I broadly call it, it's a media company. And there are things that are expanding into research type work as well. But from the media perspective, it started and still is the home to my weekly articles. So those are the articles, the deep dives that I put out once a week that usually tackle one topic in the business of hip hop or its intersections and mostly diving at the why or how. Could be looking at a trend that's happening in the future, something that happened historical, a case study about someone that's in this space. So that's the main focus there. And then I also have a podcast where I am sitting down and talking to 
the leaders and the movers that are shaping this industry and a lot of the people that were decision makers behind the types of things that are talked about in Trapital. So that's the content there. I also have additional content as well for paid subscribers. So Trapital from a business model perspective is freemium where there's free content available for everyone. And then those that want more, there's additional updates on Mondays and Fridays that cover some of the more specific up-to-date things that are timely happening in the next, in the past, you know, 48 to 72 hours. Here's what you should know. Here's my take on it. So that goes out to a subset of readers as well. And then also community building efforts with those um, readers. Cause I think I realized that there's a lot of value in being able to bring those folks together. So I've done a few different things. Um, back when we could convene before this virus broke out, had a few in-person meetings and dinners and happy hours in different cities, have started to do some of that virtually in the past month and a half with different members, um, discussion forums as well. And it's been good to hear some of the stories. There's been business opportunities that have been made between a couple different members, people meeting up after Trapital get-togethers. So that part of it has been good. And, you know, things that I'm also thinking through down the road, I got a lot of requests for additional content that is standalone, but not necessarily the same written content. So I've started to put out um, different databases on the types of data that I would naturally use for Trapital and including that in the membership offering. So who are the investors in hip hop? Who are the main and brand endorsements and who are the artists that they're partnering with. These are the type of things that I'm writing about and being able to have that in a database is helpful for the decision makers because those are the people that are more likely to want to pay or be interested in paid content. And then one of the more recent things that I have um, been pushing out is client services and helping folks on a more one-to-one -one basis or one or trapital to their company basis with consulting and advisory work. Um, that's something that had been requested a few times, just given like, oh, you did this analysis. It'd be great to get your thoughts on this deal we're doing or this potential go-to-market strategy that we have. So that's something that's been in the works that's been slowly rolling out. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, all right, so let, let's, let's uh, this is the fun part for me, uh, or the fun, well, another fun part. Um, I want to talk about a couple of the articles because I, I really enjoyed us. Um, what's Travis Scott and his team know that the rest of us don't? <laughs> I, like the, I like the way you framed that question. I, I think in general, I'll say that an artist like Travis Scott has a pretty good arbitrage opportunity right now because he operates in this space that I'd say a lot of hip hop media and a lot of media in general aren't necessarily invested in, right? And I mean invested in because most of the people that cover this space, most of the people that are decision makers in this space, they do have a tendency to be much more reflective and understanding of what's happening in their experience, right? So the people that are rising in management roles, they're, you know, starting to be millennials now. And maybe there's a bit more um, Gen X as well and baby boomers. Like these are still the people that I think are making a majority of the decisions. But Travis Scott, even though I think he's technically a millennial, he has this Gen Z hip hop audience that they're like, this is our guy. And 
how he communicates with the fans, how he creates experiences with them, with his concerts, with his music festivals. He is willing to push the boundaries in ways that other artists aren't. And I guess I'll put it this way. I think that there's a tendency for artists that I feel like, you know, are in that like Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, Drake range, where these guys are in their mid-30s now, they've been in the game for 10 years. There's a bit more of a caution of what they're willing to do and how much they're willing to push things. And I don't think that Travis Scott has that. I've um, affectionately called him hip-hop's growth hacker because whatever he does, he's willing to exploit the rules and maximize it. If it is a album that needs to go out and he wants to maximize his sales and he knows that album bundles are one of the best ways to do that, I think the rules are arcane and need to be changed. But he's like, okay, if those are the rules, then I'm going to have a different product m combined and bundled with my album every hour for a week and a half and we are going to roll that out consistently and seeing him do that people had issues with it Nicki minaj was frustrated in it but if you looked at everything that happened after that we literally saw someone become a superstar in a four-month period he released that album and five months later he's performing on stage at the super bowl i guarantee you that you know, two thirds of the people watching the Super Bowl didn't even know who that guy was before that. He does that. And then he has a documentary on Netflix. Not that many artists have documentary on Netflix. And because we now have an idea how much they're paying, you have to be a certain level to be willing to do that. And what he's now most recently done with this, um, this Fortnite um, event that he had last week brought together 28 million people, staged it as you know several different shows, was able to bring his audience together. And I think a lot of his audience plays Fortnite as well because of that audience overlap and the type of person they're reaching. I think he's really tapped in and he's figuring things out. And I think it may take a while for people to really get a grasp for it because I feel like the industry has spent so long trying to like figure out Drake and figure out Jay-Z that all of a sudden there's someone that is under 30 and doing their own thing, building their own empire. And even though he's breaking all these records, I still think that people are like, okay, but he's kind of doing his thing over there. And it's like, uh, he might be closer to being on their level than you might think. And it looks, everything he does looks incredibly fun. Yeah. Um, whether it's the hacking the, um, the billboard chart, like you have to imagine he's sitting around with his team laughing. Right, right. They're just laughing the whole time. Laughing because they're putting one over, but laughing just by the sheer creativity that it takes to do a new product every hour. Right. That's a trip. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And I think tying something back to what you had said earlier, you could tell that this is someone that he doesn't operate like he carries a burden or a chip on his shoulder in terms of a responsibility of what he necessarily feels like he needs to do. I mean, I think he definitely has the competitive edge after watching his um, Netflix documentary uh, whenever it ended up coming out. He was pretty upset that he didn't win that um, Grammy Award. Cardi B had beat him for a rap album of the year. He was not happy about that. So, I mean, he's still a competitive person but uh, yeah i think that him and people and some of the artists like him i mentioned little uzi vert i'd probably throw 
Young Thug and Tyler, the creator and that group as well, they're operating from a different perspective. And I just don't think that they necessarily, or that hip hop itself necessarily gets what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. A couple other pieces I wanted to talk about. I, I think it'd be seriously remiss to not talk about the Jay-Z Game Dash piece. Uh, so you alluded to it before. Before I ask any questions about it, can you sort of articulate what your hypothesis was there? Or- yeah. So Jay-Z and Damon Dash, of course, they're two of the um, three co-founders of Rockefeller, started in 96. They had their rise. The early 2000s were great for them. But then they started to have their issues and they ultimately split in 03 and 04. And they had two very different ideas on how they wanted to go about things. And I think we've seen that now. Dame Dash is much more of a ownership type person. He was the president or technically CEO, but he was the management leader of Rockefeller. And he wanted to be able to be the key person owning what was happening. He wanted rock films. He wanted rock sports. And even down to like how he would manage things. He, I remember there was this one clip uh, back when they had the Hard Knock Life tour. They were handing out jackets and there were some jackets that said Def Jam on it. And even though they were technically under Def Jam, he was livid. He berated the guy. He's like, no, these should say Rockefeller on them. So he was definitely more of that like, yes, if we're building something, we have to own it. And I do think that's a very popular and common starting point that I think especially a lot of people, a lot of black people in the entertainment industry push because there's things such as who has the ownership and who ends up making more money. So it's very understandable where he's coming from. Jay-Z, on the other hand, was much more willing to partner with the big organizations and look at the broader pie of the partnerships that could come and how that could help benefit everything. And I think just thinking about the two of those mentalities, if Dame Dash is much more from the ownership perspective, he will have more control over the pie, but it's going to be a much smaller pie, right? But Jay-Z, he wants to have a chunk of the much larger pie, the much larger opportunity. That percentage will be much smaller than Dame Dash's is, but the pie is much bigger. So I think we started to see things change for Jay-Z, specifically when he became president of Def Jam. So this was like after... It's like right after he dropped the Black Album, so it was like in the mid-2000s. He was president of Def Jam. He saw some of the challenges there, but eventually he formed the deal to start Rock Nation. Rock Nation then was a joint deal between Live Nation and him. And he signed that deal, and it was a $150 million deal. So... It was still a relatively small size of the pie, but that type of deal gave Jay-Z the opportunity to then have additional money to make investments. And then that money was able to be put towards starting Rock Nation, which gave him the ability to then make even more money on tour. So even though people you know, hate on 360 deals and rightfully so, he was able to make the best of it. And because Jay-Z was the person that ended up, quote-unquote, winning the beef because of how successful he became, his ideology was the one that hip-hop ended up following. And I think we see more artists follow that path more than most than, um, than Damon Dash's does. So when I look at how Drake has been able to build his business, 
Drake is very much modeled in way his way after Jay-Z. Even you look at Beyonce and some of the partnerships she's been able to make. I think a lot of that has been modeled after what Jay-Z has been able to do. So when we see artists follow that path, I think that Dame Dash's path kind of became the underdog. And it kind of makes me think about Kanye West to some extent. He was the one that ended up siding with Jay, even though he knew that Damon Dash was more like him. So when you think about that, it's almost inevitable that they had the issues they have now. But it's also interesting to look at how Jay, um, what's his name, Kanye West is now a billionaire, newly minted, according to Forbes. But it's not because of all these. It actually is because of a big partnership. I mean, Yeezy's big, but Yeezy wouldn't be Yeezy if it weren't for Adidas. So it's been interesting to see that. But yeah, I think that's ultimately the deciding factor between the split between those two. Yeah, I think that that's a super fascinating observation. The Kanye element in particular. And, and, and I mean, shrewd on his part, right? To understand where he might be more comfortable or where he might feel philosophical alignment, but he knew the right, the right business path. Right. Uh, I thought but, the, the thing, the, the line that, that you hit was uh, that Jay-Z operates like a private equity. Yeah. Brands are choosing to work with. And that, that was so dead on. And it really crystallized for me for so long but why does he work with the second tier brands and, and right you, right you nailed it perfectly that, that that's where the upside is mm-hmm. exactly yeah i think he he knew that's where the upside is and i think he understood the brand of celebrity very well and i think that's something that people miss right if you're already partnering with the biggest brand in the world like if you partner with nike i mean nike's always going to be there like you can always get something but you want to be able to it's going to work out better for you down the road if you can then be like, yeah, I was able to make this deal and make this money, but I helped this brand do X. This gives you the bullet points you could use in future deals. So I remember people would drag on him like, oh, why are you partnering with Bing instead of Google? Why are you doing deals with Samsung instead of doing a deal with Verizon and all these types of things. And even to some extent title, like why would you be the title instead of riding the wave of Spotify? He obviously hasn't succeeded with every venture that he's done, but yeah, I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. And when I look at this past decade and a lot of the artists that have been investing, a lot of them, I think about Diddy in this regard too, a lot of them are looking for opportunities where their brand can help elevate and make an impact beyond just the financial investment. And I do think a lot of that stems back to how Jay-Z thinks about things, that, that underdog brand um, mentality. Did he develop that worldview and that model, or was there an existing precedent that looked at and adapted? That's a good question. Um, I know that... Um, I know that Zach O'Malley Greenberg, he's the Forbes writer that does um, a lot of the Cash Kings list and those things. I know that he had looked into that specific part about it, interviewed him. I forget if that comes, if that came from somewhere, if that came from himself. That's a good question. I think he's yeah. researched that though. And I think what I, it's, I, I'm, I'm personally, I think there's, I have some discomfort around that question because I think the notion behind that then is to somehow rob him of his agency and rob right. him of the, um, the ability to develop that. So I think it's a, I think it's a worthy question, but I also think it's a dangerous topic. 
Right. Yeah. Cause what it could imply. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's such a fascinating man. And, and the thing is you talked about earlier when he went inside of Devin, you know, it's so we talk about sort of that, that, that notion of a like short memory in hip hop, you know, he was sort of retired and, right, right. and when he retired, he was barely an arena actor. Um, mm. He was not this boring juggernaut. You know, he, he could still have a hit record, but he was not at the peak. Um, he could always make headlines, but he, you know, he was not what we know today. Right. And whatever he did for those few years when he went away, the idea that if you, if you had said in 2003, Jay-Z is going to be an arena headline around the tour, around the world by the end of the decade, I, I don't think anybody would have signed up for that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy growth and a transformation. I mean, I think about that 01 to 03 range. And this is where things, it's like, what's your view, right? From a hip hop perspective, he was huge, right? But that's still from a hip hop perspective. He had, he didn't have a number one hit until Empire State of Mind. And that's 2009. So you think about all the songs that may have been big within hip hop, such as anything off of the Black Album or anything off of the Blueprint or Big Pimpin', it was still centric in hip hop. So I think a lot of that um, is relative to like what we were talking about earlier, right? Like hip hop's legitimacy and hip hop's growth and like all the things that happened. I think a lot of that was able to ride that path. And yeah, so him being president of Def Jam, that helped add some legitimacy. But then, yeah, I think that big offer with Live Nation. And I think there were some other deals around the same time that opened headlines. Like I know that 50 Cent isn't looked at from the same business perspective, but when he was able to make a ton of money from that, um, that vitamin water deal, I think that was around the same time, like 07, 08, light bulbs started to go off there as well. And then, yeah, I think by the time that like Jay-Z, because, yeah, he had done the tours and then he'd done the tours with Kanye, done the stuff with Justin Timberlake, him and Beyonce. Yeah, I think by the time that him and Beyonce went on tour, it was like, no, this is like he – because that was beyond arenas. They were in like baseball stadiums at that point. So, Same. so the last thing I want to, I want to ask you about, um, and I want to be mindful of your time is, um, man, the piece about death row. Mm-hmm. And um, the interesting thing about it is that it kind of revisits that theme you mentioned earlier between like ownership and partnership. Um, mm-hmm. Although it's sort of ownership in the extreme, um, <laughs> and I, I just I want to um, I want to read one one sentence or sentence and a half for you. It says you wrote that Knight wanted the power that came with big names mm-hmm. and the control that came with total ownership and none of the trade offs from either approach. Unfortunately for Knight, business doesn't work. So the power that came with big names, so sort of being the mogul that, that if you kind of think of like maybe an Amit Erdogan in the past, had the Rolling Stone, had Led Zeppelin, had Cream, was a, was a, um, was a stylish tastemaker, a business artist, you know, could hang with right. the artist, could get a lot of his cachet from being around the artist. The artist wanted to be around him because he was a stylish, sophisticated mover. Mm. Um, so Knight wanted that, but he also he wanted to run the table too. Right, it wasn't enough to just rub the shoulder. Right, yeah. Those two things are they they become incompatible. Yeah, it's it's 
it's interesting. I mean, he's definitely one of the most interesting people that I think that has ever crossed through hip hop. Like, I think to people that didn't realize it, he's almost like a borderline mythical figure in terms of like how he's talked about the stories and all that. I mean, I will say that there were some things that were heads up. Like a lot of people often try to trace back, like when did the whole master's ownership in this thing become a public thing? And I do think people look at Birdman, people look at Master P, and people look at Suge Knight as three of the hip hop artists that were managers, CEOs of record labels that were adamant about these things. And it worked out well in their favor. They were able to get those things. I think all three of those people are different in their own regard. But if we look at Suge Knight specifically, yeah, he wanted to be able to have all of the ownership, all of the control, not just with what came to death row, but also with what he himself was able to keep relative to any of the other artists and how he was willing to fray relationships in order to maintain that. Him and Dr. Dre had their issues and split not too long into things. Like by the time that Tupac had come on to death row, that relationship was fractured and pretty much done. I know we all look memorably at that vibe cover with the four of them uh, together with um, Suge Knight, Dr. Dre, Suge, and um, Tupac. But by the time that happened, those relationships were already fractured. So he wanted that ownership, but he also wanted the partnership as well. He knew that Interscope would be a massive channel for them to be able to pump the distribution and have the success. And I mean, if you just look at it, the first, well, three of the first, I, I forget the exact number, but a few of those first albums were able to be regarded as classics that did very well. The Chronic, Doggy Style, and then um, you have the, um, and then Tupac's albums. You have with both the um, All Eyes on Me, I believe Me Against the World was technically before, but you have those three albums being some of the first ones that your label puts out so at that point even though you have these challenges everything is sky high everything is operating but in order to get to that point you had to fracture relationships you had to anger and rub a lot of quarters and make a lot of enemies in this industry and i think that there was a way to achieve a good amount of that success maybe you didn't necessarily get all of it and still have a sustainable operation and i think that's where things get a little tough it's like what is the cost that you're willing to pay to get to these like insane levels of success and height and not that that was unattainable but Suge Knight proved that yes we got to this ultimate peak in the beginning of 1996 and the end of 1995 but I you know he w he had to both sever and make ties almost frustratingly bad with Interscope he needed to frustrate the ties and fracture what was happening with Dr. Dre and was willing to pretty much put everything on the line to get Tupac. And then Tupac wanted to do his own expansions and all of that without necessarily worrying about the infrastructure. It was almost, you know, built to implode. And in some ways, I often think about cash money in a similar type way. I think cash money is different because I do think that Birdman obviously was able to keep, has been able to keep this record label running and the success that it's had since the mid nineties to now is unmistakable. That said, 
Birdman is someone else that wanted to have his cake and eat it with he negotiated like anything to get that universal um, distribution deal back in the late 90s. But then he kept that same energy with the artist that he signed and making them need to lawyer up in order to get their pay that they deserved. So it's interesting when people like this have come through hip hop. While I think there's plenty of good things that hip hop's been able to learn from their experience, I'd probably say there's probably things I'd give um, what's his name, Birdman, more credit for than Suge Knight. But still, like, I think we realize like anything, right? Like business and strategy is a lesson of trade-offs. And what you say no to just as important as what you say yes to. I think that these were people that knew what to say no to, but everything that was on the table, it was like, I'm going to say yes to this that I want. And the things I'm going to say no to aren't the things that I'm necessarily willing to accept. It's more so the things I just don't want to do. And that just doesn't work. And I think we ultimately saw um, how, how that plays out. Well, the other figure in that story that you mentioned being Master P, um, I thought it was really interesting. I think Snoop did the work uh, narratively in, in the piece where you, Snoop talked about, um, I forgot how he said it, but it was essentially Suge Knight took and Master P gave back. Right, right. Yeah, it was um, Suge Knight um, made money in rap and Master P put money in, in rap. Or yeah, I, I actually forget the exact quote now that I'm saying it, but yeah, it was ultimately about what are you willing to contribute versus what are you willing to take back? And yeah, Snoop would know better than, better than everyone. I've also read about Master P and like how his success and some of the tactics that he used and what would work then, what may not necessarily work now. I do think it's interesting because him specifically, he's one of those people that people often revered in terms of his run and his epic 1998 where didn't even tour. He was able to just sell millions and was able to make millions off of putting out records every other week. It was impressive. And I think that, you know, Nipsey Hussle, rest in peace, he was someone that always revered the work that Master P had done. He wanted to build the No Limit of the West. Um, yeah, so I do think that he's probably the one that, you know, deserves more of the respect, I think, from a hip-hop perspective. But like any one of these successful record labels from the past that is no longer existent, there are plenty of stories to be able to glean from them. And that's ultimately, you know, some of the things I enjoy to do uh, with travel because I think not only do I get a lot out of it, but I think it helps a lot of the other people that are living and breathing this stuff that are like, oh, how did so-and-so go about this? And it's like, boom, here's a travel piece for you. Well, I'm looking forward to the travel book because I know there's enough, uh, there's enough material to mine that uh, I bet you there's a great book in there. <laughs> no, thank but. you. Yeah, a few people have asked. A few people have asked. Something, something I'll need to think about. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I really, I appreciate your time. I've enjoyed talking with you. Um, I would love to do this again, maybe someday and uh, talk more about music itself. Uh, I suspect we have a great conversation along those lines too. Yeah, definitely. Now, hopefully whenever we um, get back to the new normal of life, no, yeah, it'd be great to, great to connect. <laughs> Thank you so much to Dan Runcie. And thank you for spending time with Spotlight On. Remember, this podcast is available from Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the other great places you can get your podcasts from. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. 
A big thank you to Aunt Taylor and the entire Light family. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit Light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. And as always, please keep your feedback coming. You can reach me directly at LP at Light.com. Please share this episode with a friend and leave feedback on your podcast platform of choice. That's a massive help to our cause. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.